Well, that was the opening music to Miracle on 34th Street. And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews. And you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net or on Patreon. And this is a bonus episode for our patrons at Tier 2 and 3. And I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm coming to you from North Bend, where it's down in the low 30 degrees Fahrenheit this morning. It's quite chilly. Uh, Winter's on the way for you. This is Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, where I'm trying to recover from the uh, visuals of your house that was decorated for Halloween. Man, that was was scary. I was... We did a good job this year. We we had the scary house, the quote unquote scary house in the neighborhood this year. I think. <laughs> I, I think you might have had the scary house in all of North Bend and the East Side. <laughs> if Nancy and I were commenting. If we were driving by, we would not go up there to to say hello. Yeah, props to the kids that did come up to the door because <laughs> <Yeah, right. laughs> <laughs> they're just now recovering. Took some courage. Uh, yeah. I'm in Los Angeles uh, today, where we're. Uh, having pretty good weather and uh, a fair number of fires uh, from the dry weather and the uh, high, uh, low humidity. Is the air, what's the air quality like down there today? Uh, moderate. They're recommending you not go out too much, so I've pretty much stayed around the house. want to welcome everybody back uh, to the uh, Tier 2 and 3 podcast on Patreon. And thank you for joining us uh, on Patreon. Uh, we look forward to many, many more years of uh, podcast. Yeah, and we should give a shout out to our two new patrons, um, you and Jaden. So thank you for subscribing. Uh, yes, I thought that that would be a good way to see how it looks as we go out into the market with this. And uh, it'll be a slow build like we had when we started our podcast. Remember the first podcast we did back in 2014? We had 24 listeners. And uh, now, what yep, do we have? It just takes time. 16, 17,000, something like that. So, we're going to keep moving ahead. Yes, indeed. Miracle on 34th Street. Uh, quite, a, quite a wonderful film. It's one of Nancy's favorites. So, I was glad that we had a chance to look at it together. You, you, would, have been a little, you would have been a little young to go see this in the theater, probably, huh? Well, I was thinking about that before we started today. My mom would have wanted to go to this movie as soon as she could when it came out. I would have been uh, six. So I may have tagged along, but I, you know, I have no memory of seeing this in the theater. I know I've seen it on TV several times, but I, I'm sure that I would have been there, but uh, it might have just gone right over my head except for Santa Claus. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty young to try to remember a movie. I've seen it so many times on uh, TV over the years. I think it's kind of a staple movie that's played on cable channels during the holidays. You know, it's a uh, what I like about it is 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 a is, it's a fantasy film, but it's so well done and it mixes in the uh, Macy's Parade and New York City and. The characters, for the most part, are pretty believable. I had some good laughs about some of the, like the district attorney and the judge. <laughs> they struggled. They struggled with this case. The judge was well, and, and I thought it was funny too. The judge and I don't know who his supporter was there that was giving him advice to not take this case, and then oh, his his uh, political advisor William William Frawley as Charlie Halloran. 
They had some funny looks that they gave each other during the trial. I think uh, the advisor, William Frawley's hat and cigar, really set a, set a mood for his role. He went on, <laughs> he went on in the uh, 1950s to be a big hit on uh, the Jackie Gleason show. He was, oh, okay. he was he played the husband to uh, Lucy uh, Lucille Ball's character uh, her good friend uh, William Foley was was her good friend's husband had a very long career he was something wasn't he <laughs> yeah he was funny yeah we should we should mention who all's in this movie it was directed by George Seaton who also wrote the screenplay and Maureen O'Hara is Doris Walker. John Payne is Fred Gailey. Edmund Gwen is Chris Kringle. Gene Lockhart plays the judge that we were just talking about. Natalie Wood is uh, Susan Walker, the, the non-believing sort of child of Maureen O'Hara, at least at the beginning of the movie. Oh, I've been keeping an eye on her. She can see everything from there. That's the 50-yard line. He's so very fond of Susan. When he asked me, well, I didn't think you'd mind. Well, I guess it's all right. I'll go on in in a minute. <laughs> Looks like they're having a little trouble with the baseball player. He was a clown last year. They just changed the head and painted him different. My mother told me. Mm. He certainly is a giant, isn't he? Not really. There are no giants, Mr. Gailey. Well, maybe not now, Susie, but in olden days there were a lot of... Well, what about the giant that Jack killed? Jack? Jack who? Jack who? Jack. Jack and the Beanstalk. I never heard of that. Oh, you must have heard of that. You've just forgotten. It's a fairy tale. Oh, one of those. I don't know any fairy tales. Oh, your mother and father must have told you a fairy tale. No, my mother thinks they're silly. I don't know whether my father thinks they're silly or not. I never met my father. You see, my father and mother were divorced when I was a baby. Well, that baseball player certainly looks like a giant to me. People sometimes go very big, but that's abnormal. I'll bet your mother told you that, too. Hello. Uh, I'm Susan's mother. Yes, I know. Won't you come in? Susie's told me quite a lot about you. I'm Fred Haley. Yes, I know. Susan's told me quite a lot about you, too. Hello, Mother. Hello, dear. Oh. Won't you have a cup of coffee? You must be half frozen oh, standing Oh, don't out. bother. Oh, it's no bother, it's already. Well, in that case, thanks. What do you think of my parade? It's much better than last year's. Well, I hope Mr. Macy agrees with you. Porter Hall <laughs> played Granville Sawyer. He's the last person guy... you'd want to see if you had any kinds of issues. I think, was he part of the HR department, like human resources? I don't know what his job was at the store. <laughs> I, I believe he would have. Troublemaker? I believe he would have been, but uh, he, yeah, he was, uh, to say he was incompetent is an understatement. He was like the worst HR business partner you could ever think of having. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was, it was a, it's a wonderful film. Uh, well, you mentioned, you thought, you said it was a fantasy movie, but I, I, I always think of this as sort of a, a, a movie where you, you you're never quite sure you know it's 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 open to interpretation i guess oh yes yeah. that's a better way to say it yeah 
I mean, I, I, I'm a believer, so, I mean, I thought Edmund Gwen was Santa Claus. He's like the perfect actor to play Santa Claus. No kidding. Um, well, just a bit of background. Uh, again, 20th Century Fox uh, put it together and distributed it. And George Seaton, now here's a bit of trivia. I dug this out of the, of the recesses of my many records. He originally on radio played the role of the Lone Ranger. On, oh, wow. And there's a famous hi-ho silver away. With the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty high old silver, the Lone Ranger. Uh, as a part of the show, he's credited with doing that because he couldn't whistle for the horse very well, so they came up with that expression. Now there's something oh, that's <laughs> iconic. I mean, that was that was carried through like the TV series, yeah. and I think even in the movie that they or the movies that they've made, and that, that just became his bus- classic. His business partner William Pearlberg. They formed a firm in 1950. Pearlberg Seaton. They made a lot of films. Uh, one that is very memorable: The Country Girl from 1954 with Grace Kelly and Bing Crosby. Miss Kelly uh, won an Academy Award for that role. And then a film that my actor friend was in that they did was 36 Hours from 1964. And my friend was in that uh, film. That's with James Garner and I believe Eva Marie Saint. So they, they had a, a long career together. They um, Their partnership lasted for several years. So that's kind of the background on who put this together. Where to start with the characters? I started with Edmund Gwynn. I mean, he he did uh, he did roughly eighty movies. And for uh, listeners and and viewers of classic movies, in Foreign Correspondent in 1940, he plays Rowley. He's the murderous hitman that tries to do in Joel McRae. <laughs> and here and then here he is a few years later playing Santa Claus. Well, and we can't forget he was the scientist in them. He was the scientist. He, yes, and and he I loved him in that movie too. He was so he good. He was so believable and he was uh, kind of the lead in Lassie Come Home from 1943. So he was all over the place in terms of parts that he played. He never got typecast, I guess. No. I, you know, Even by this film. He, he pl- yeah, he played all kinds of characters. I have a question for you, though. Was that a real beard that he had? I thought it was. I want to believe that it was, because I thought that beard was amazing. And yeah. I, I was like, I wonder if I could grow a beard like that. Yeah, probably, I don't know how long <laughs> that would take, but anyway, he's Chris Kringle. and uh, There's a funny, uh, just one thing about the beard, there's a funny scene when he moves in with uh, Fred Gailey. And Fred's like, there's one thing I got to know. I've always wanted to ask you, uh, Chris Kringle this. Beard under the covers or over the covers? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Chris is like, over the covers, of course. Of course, he didn't miss a beat. That's right, exactly. It's a deal. Ready? Oh, no, you don't. I'm not going to be cheated this way. All my life I've wondered something, and now's my chance to find out. 
I'm going to find the answer to a question that's puzzled the world for centuries. Does Santa Claus sleep with his whiskers outside or in? Always sleeping them out. Cold air makes them grow. And then uh, Natalie Wood. Oh my gosh, um, she she was in movies. I think she did uh, f- almost fifty films, and she'll be in our film that we're going to be doing um, in a, in a few podcasts, Rebel Without a Cause. Oh yeah, that's right. And she was the uh, lead in West Side Story from yep. 1961. She's been in quite a few movies that we've watched. And she was in the movie with John Wayne, The Searchers. She plays the uh, kidnapped, kidnapped, kidnapped uh, girl that uh, Wayne goes to rescue. Wonderful career. And she died under still sort of mysterious circumstances out in the Catalina area. Beautiful woman. Yeah, I know. We, talk, we, we talked about that during West Side Story, that there was... I think right before we recorded that episode, there was some new headline on the tabloids about that. Yeah. So it just it just kind of comes back every so often. John Payne, uh, again, long career, did about sixty films, and and he was kind of a he was in either musicals in the early part of his career, or he played in film noir and dramas in his later part of a career. Very successful. A favorite movie of mine that he was in is Ninety Nine River Street. From 1953, another film noir that people might enjoy watching. Uh, and then Maureen O'Hare, who lived to be almost 100. Wow. She was in so many movies. I I, I forgot. Let's see. I, I think I have a list here, but I can't find it right now. Remember The Quiet Man with John Wayne? Yeah, yeah. I thought that, yep. That was a good movie. And she won an Academy Award for a Lifetime Achievement in 2014. And my friend worked with her on another film, and he said she was one of the most beautiful women he ever had seen when he first met her on the set. And uh, she had quite a uh, quite a personality, very outgoing and, and uh, very charismatic. I think that's everybody that were the main... I thought okay. she was so great as the as the mother in this movie, and she to me is one of the classic kind of movie stars of of this period. She really is, and, and, and she went. Her last film was in, um, I believe, twenty ten. Wow. Yeah, or she was actually uh, either television or a film. I can't remember which. So her career spanned from nineteen thirty eight to twenty ten. That's not bad. Not bad at all. Let's just talk about the plot a little bit Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Um, it starts off with a tracking shot following Chris Kringle down the street. And then he stops at a store window and is correcting the shop owner <laughs> because he's got the reindeer in the wrong order and they don't have the right number of points on the antler and it's just it's just a funny way to like introduce his character you've got them mixed up you're making a mistake you're making a mistake with a reindeer would you mind stepping out for a moment open the door on 
sorry. The store isn't open today. And oh, I, I don't just... want to buy anything, and I'm sorry to interrupt you in your work. But I wanted to tell you you're making a rather serious mistake. Huh? With the reindeer, I mean. You've got Cupid where Blitzen should be. And Dasher, oh, Dasher should be on my right-hand side. He should, huh? Yes. Yeah. Oh, and another thing. Donna's antlers are about four points instead of three. Still, I don't suppose anybody had noticed that except myself. No, I don't suppose so. No. Well, bye. Not at all. Thanks. Glad to have helped you. Bye. <laughs> I laughed at that because that guy inside the shop thought, who in the world is that dude? And it, it does set up like the whole kind of crux of the film around, is this just some kind of, not crazy, but just kind of not quite all there, older gentleman who thinks he's Santa Claus, or is this really Santa Claus, I know, and, you know? And they, and they do such a marvelous job of keeping that question alive through the whole film. I'd say the first half of the movie is really about him becoming the Santa Claus at the Macy's uh, store and what an impact he has, not just on the people at Macy's, but kind of across the whole city. And he seems to br bring goodwill to all these other retailers and, and just people in general. And it's, it's, it, it really makes you want to believe that he is Santa Claus because of this uh, effect that he's having on people and the city. And one of the reasons I wanted to, to do this uh, film as a podcast is it, it covers the time from Thanksgiving Day to Christmas Eve and starts with the Thanksgiving Day parade and ends with the uh, ending uh, in court. And in that one month, he has such an effect on the entire city and all those retailers, gimbals and all the rest. And everybody he meets. He was, yeah, and, and he was, the actor, uh, Edmund Gwynn, was actually playing Santa Claus in the Macy's Day Parade. And oh, nobody really so knew that that was it. him. I mean, he, that was, yeah, they filmed, they actually filmed him in the parade, the actual parade. I thought that was cool. And then I also read that, in a, in a way, this movie kind of introduced the country to Macy's as a, as a huge retailer. And... Um, made them a lot more famous than they had been before that. The way Macy's was was handled and the uh, the character of Mr. Macy was all very positive. I mean, it it, it was like a two hour promotional uh, film that that really helped them. And Nancy commented when we watched it that most of those other retailers that they mentioned in the film, Gimbals and so forth, are no longer around. And here's Macy's that's everywhere in the country. I mean. And I think they're still in that store, that that building that they shot some of the exteriors from. I think so. From and here's a question we had: It looked to us as as they were uh, filming it that they were actually inside the Macy's store, in the employee locker area and the hallways and all. It just looked so realistic the 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 way the halls were done and all. I'm not sure about that part, but I I definitely know that they filmed on location in. New York, and they and it was bitterly cold there while they were there. It's kind of like what happened when they filmed. Oh, the wrong man. And they were in New York, and it was so cold. You know, it's like apparently don't don't go to New York in the winter to film a movie without knowing that it's going to be bitterly cold. I loved the opening part where he becomes the Santa when the uh, other Santa has been drinking a bit and doesn't know how to use that uh, whip to get the reindeer to move. <laughs> drinking a bit <laughs> the guy couldn't even sit up straight while well, i was trying to be politically uh, nice but ben he was three sheets to the wind. chris really know how to handle that uh, that whip 
I beg your pardon, sir. You seem to have got slightly mixed up with this whip of yours. Allow me, will you? Allow me. It's quite simple, really. Don't mind if I show you, eh? No, sir. Now, now. See, it's all in the wrist. Yes, of course, it's hollow so? through, you know. Is that so? Yes, it's just like throwing a ball. If you were to... <laughs> You've been drinking. Well, it's cold. A man's got to do something to keep warm. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Don't you realize that there are thousands of children lining the streets waiting to see you? <laughs> children who've been dreaming of this moment for weeks? You're a disgrace to the tradition of Christmas. And I refuse to have you malign me in this fashion. Tell me. Yeah, I, I really liked his character. I, I, uh, I kind of have two reviews of the movie I, I i have the review of the first half of the movie and i just love the first half of the movie it's so heartwarming and his character is so kind and always has a way to deal with people that is kind of a little bit unexpected and has the effect of kind of turning their mind around to being kinder and gentler and then there's the second half of the film which is kind of more of a courtroom drama and i I'm not as enamored with the second half of the movie. <laughs> I, I just, I, I found that it, it, it kind of took some of the, the shine off of, of that first half of the movie for me, the, the warm feeling that I had. Oh, okay. I, I, I felt like the uh, half that dealt with the courtroom was much more comedic, a lot more comedy when they introduced the political advisor and the judge and, how all the uh, participants' children were upset with them for, for uh, even having this case brought forward. Yeah, that that was funny. The looks that the kids gave him, like the district attorney, and his wife is like, "Do I don't want you discussing this case at home?" You know, <laughs> they were sh his children were shunning him. Yeah, and then when the uh, the judge was getting advice from his political advisor about, oh, yeah, you can go ahead and do this, but let me just kind of run through what it's going to do to you. I don't care what you do with old Whiskerpuss, but if you go back in there and rule that there's no Santa Claus, you better start looking for that chicken farm right now. Why, we won't even be able to put you in the primaries. But, Charlie, listen to reason. I'm a responsible judge. I I've taken an oath. How can I seriously rule that there is a Santa Claus? Why don't you look? All right. You go back and tell him that the New York State Supreme Court rules there's no Santa Claus. It's all over the papers. The kids read it and they don't hang up their stockings. Now, what happens to all the toys that are supposed to be in those stockings? Nobody buys them. The toy manufacturers are going to like that. So they have to lay off a lot of their employees, union employees. Now you got the CIO and the AFL against you, and they're going to adore you for it. And they're going to say it with votes. Oh, and the department stores are going to love you too. And the Christmas card makers. And the candy companies. Oh, Henry, you're going to be an awful popular fella. And what about the Salvation Army? Why, they got a Santa Claus on every corner. And they take in a fortune. But you go ahead, Henry. You do it your way. You go on back in there and tell them that you rule there's no Santa Claus. Go on. But if you do, remember this. You can count on getting just two votes, your own and that district attorney's out there. 
The district attorney's a Republican. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he he looked. No, I mean it had its moments. I'm just I I I, I like I, I liked it. It's just that it was like two different movies to me almost. It just the the tone really changed. Like once he, it was really when he whacked that guy on the head. You know the Porter Hall's character Granville Sawyer, and it and to me that was sort of like a change of tone in the film. And I and I was kind of disappointed that he did that. I thought. I thought he was, you know what, what I was hoping that he would do is that he would sort of like put his hand on his shoulder and like say something really nice to him and, and it would kind of like magically turn his character, Granville Sawyer's character around, you know, instead of he just whacked him on the head and gave him a big knot on his forehead. <laughs> you know, I had forgotten that part of the film. That that was a, a little unusual for Chris Kringle to do that. And that is where the movie changes tone because then he gets in that car and they spirit him away for psychiatric uh, evaluation and then he uh he fails his test because he's he says he's taken like dozens of these like psychiatric tests and he knows all the answers and exactly what to do and he and he takes that same test from granville sawyer but it granville sawyer is not satisfied he really is got it out for uh chris kringle and and i and i didn't really understand why he was so against chris and that there was he's like he's like the grinch of the movie you know he's like uh he's just dead set against kind of making sure that chris gets put away and and then there's that scene where he and the other doctor kind of argue about whether or not chris is dangerous or not oh yeah and the the the, the other doctor comes in from where chris is living yeah I forget the name yeah. of that character, but he was he was very believable. Yeah, the, you know I think the one kind of off note in the film is the uh, is the Grand uh, I just forgot the character's name Granville Sawyer's character. He was almost like a little too one dimensional. I didn't understand. Yeah, I didn't understand his motivation. I guess is what was hard for me to to grasp because. Everybody, he had, you know, Chris Kringle had this effect on everybody else of sort of softening their hearts and warming their their personalities up to being nicer to each other and getting into the spirit of the holidays, and yet here's this one character who's got like a a, a heart of coal, you know? It's like <laughs> he's just not going to get into the spirit. Well, it, and it served as a device in the in the screenplay to move the film into the courtroom part of the proceedings. Right. I, I think that's kind of what bothered me about it. It was, it was just, it was, his character was there to be this foil for Chris Kringle to, to get the whole thing into the courtroom. And that was about it, really. I mean, it was so sad, though, when Chris was at the, uh, the institution and he, he's just so down because he failed his test on purpose. And then... Um, Fred Gailey comes in and kind of gives him a pep talk and Chris is like, you're right. We need, we need to fight for Christmas and, and not give up. And I, and I kind of like that he got his, his fire back after that. Hello, Chris. Fred. Why'd you do it, Chris? You deliberately failed that examination, didn't you? Why? Why? Because the last few days, I've had great hope. I had a feeling Doris was beginning to believe in me. 
And now I find out she was only just humoring me all the time. But I just talked to her on the phone. She didn't know anything about the taking pictures with the mayor. That was Sawyer's idea. Hmm? Well, I'm glad of that. But why didn't she come to me and explain the whole thing? She didn't want to hurt you. But only because I was a nice, kind old man and she was sorry for me. That's not true. Yes, it is. She had doubts. That's why she was just sorry. If you'd been dragged off here instead of me, she wouldn't have been sorry. She'd have been furious. All right, she had doubts. Why not? She hasn't really believed in anything for years. You can't expect her to oh, suddenly... Oh, it's not just Doris. There's Mr. Sawyer. He's contemptible, dishonest, selfish, deceitful, vicious. And yet he's out there and I'm in here. He's called normal and I'm not. But if that's normal, I don't want it. That's why I answered the questions incorrectly. But, Chris, you can't just think of yourself. What happens to you matters to a lot of other people. People like me who believe in what you stand for. And people like, like Susie who are just beginning to. You can't quit. You can't let them down. No. I suppose I shouldn't. Who knows? Maybe someday the Sawyers will be in here instead of out there. You're right. I ought to be ashamed of myself. Even if we can't win, we can go down swinging. Let's get out of here. I hadn't really thought about the two parts of the film, but as I... As I... Listen to what you're saying. I can see that uh, as as sort of uh, the the point where it turns when he uses his cane there. Um, but I, I thought they did a uh, a good job of of presenting the uh, the role of R. H. Macy, the uh, CEO of the company. And um, I tell you, Macy's must have loved this film. <laughs> like wow i like the idea of i like the idea of of macy's sending people to other stores if macy's didn't have what yeah what the they were looking for and you know it just generated so much goodwill and and i thought that it was funny because they did these uh catalogs of what other stores had and then they gave them all to all the retail sales associates and i thought that that was like pre you know internet uh, shopping, you know, like on the uh, today we could just go and do a search yes. from different retailers yes. and find the best deal and have it delivered to our door. But back in the day, like the one woman had been looking for this one particular fire truck, and Chris Kringle tells her little boy, like, "Oh, you'll get it, don't you know? Absolutely, you know, you'll get it." And then the mom comes up afterwards, like, "What are you doing? I've looked all over. I've spent hours and hours looking for this one toy." And then Chris is like, well, just go over here to Gimbel's and they've got it. And I think it's like, you know, he even quotes the price. <laughs> yeah, he has it on a notepad. He pulls it out of his uh, <laughs> uh, costume and, and, and reads it to her. And that woman uh, was Thelma Ritter, played by Thelma Ritter, who was one of my favorite character actors from the 40s and 50s. She had so many good roles. If we ever do Rear Window, she's the nurse that comes to visit James Stewart. And she she looks so familiar, yeah. and I was trying to think of where I'd seen her before. So yeah, that that makes sense. We may have we may have reviewed some uh, films that she's in because she was in so many. Uh, and there's the, the whole you know the whole sort of feel of the film the the context the, the within. Oh, she was in All About Eve too. Sorry, sorry. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she was the yeah. She always played kind of the the second line character. What I also liked about the film is beyond the, the book that was like 1947's internet was the way everyone was dressed. There, everyone was, in, all the men were in suits and all the women were in sort of 
business attire pretty much. And I'm like, wow, that really sets the tone for the 40s and the 50s. Yeah, I liked that too. I liked seeing New York in like, like the late 40s. And um, everybody was so dressed up. And I, I've always kind of wondered why that was, like why that was the norm. Like even, you know, if you lived out in a, in a small town, I think you would still get dressed up to go out and go shopping like that. Well, I, I can, I can re- reference my own family. My dad was a plumber and, and he worked in plumber's clothes. He was, tip, he was a blue-collar worker. But when we went to church or when we went to dinner or any place formal, he was in a suit. He was always dressed up in a suit. Because I think they, it was almost like it, it, it added uh, a note of, of glamour to his life to, to be dressed that way. My mom the same way. I mean, it, well, so I liked that. And then the, the other thing that I had to do was get my mind around 1947 values and the culture. Because pretty much everybody in this film is from a European background. You know, there's very little diversity. I believe the only diversity is the uh, caregiver that Maureen O'Hara has for her daughter. I, I can't think of any other people. So unlike like Gentleman's Agreement, which came out in the 1940s as well, this one forced me to sort of say, okay, this is 1947, Bob, not 2019. So um, that... that I, I, that happens with these films sometimes, and I'm more aware of that now than I might have been five years ago. Well, it's, it's, it's. I think it's safe to say that that's the norm. Yeah. Right. So it, when we see something like Gentleman's Agreement, that stands out as being different, and you know, it's 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 the norm at this time and for many decades after to have the black person playing the helper. You know, yeah. like, and we saw that with the Bob Hope movie, Ghost, the Ghostbreakers. Yes, it's it. It's just, it's like it never even occurred to people when they were making these movies that that was just not okay. I, I'm, or or I don't even know if that's the right way to say. It. It's like it didn't occur to them that there would be another way to present the characters or another way to write the characters or you know you could have more diversity in the film. Um, it, and it it wasn't until decades later that that became a thing of of like a focus that we need to have more diversity. We need to have more uh, writing that's more realistic and not just so one dimensional yeah. in a lot of these movies. Well, I, I had, it helped me when I remembered that 1947 was the first year that uh, Jackie Robinson was allowed to play in Major League Baseball for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Yeah, so, And then Sidney exactly. Poitier came along uh, in the late 40s, early 50s, and it started to change a little bit more. And we'll see some of that change when we do Rebel Without a Cause. It's, it, it's, it's, sorta, it, it's good for me to go back and look at these in the context of today. I, I like that. Uh, on a lighter note, uh, I love the post office mailroom. That, no, me too. That was so <laughs> that fun. That looked like it was right out of... It doesn't happen that know. way now because it's all sorted electronically. And I don't know how those people didn't just feel so overwhelmed every day. I mean, <laughs> no. they would open a chute and then like a, a thousand letters would drop out. Then they'd start sorting them. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's a lot. And I, I love the fact that I finally identified the uh, the mail worker 
Jack Albertson played Al, the post office mail sorter. He went on to a huge career uh, in in television. Oh my gosh! And, and if you've got access to uh, your internet, there you'll see he was in all kinds of roles. And he looked. It took me a minute to realize who it was because he was so young. My, what's his name? What's his the actor's name? Jack Albertson. Oh yeah, okay. Jack Albertson, yeah. He's uncredited. How did you figure out who that was? I found it on looking around. Uh, I forget which website I found. Oh it my on. gosh, he played the grandpa in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yes, there you go. Yeah. Oh yeah. And he was in, I think, I a long-running uh, television series, but I can't remember the name of it. So it's fun to, on on the flip side of what I was talking about earlier, it's fun to watch these people when they were so young. Chico and the Man, was that the TV series? It might have been, yeah. Uh, he, he was in Gunsmoke for five years. That's that's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, that's the one. So anyway, uh, we reached the dilemma in the plot about can it be proven that Chris Kringle is really Santa Claus? And it's a real dilemma for the judge. I, I felt his pain. But Jack Albertson's character in the post office mailroom Came to the rescue un- unknowingly. Gives them an out. Unknowingly. <laughs> totally. <laughs> they send, yeah. The Postal Service sends all of the dead letters that were sent to Santa to Chris Kringle's address where he's located. And at the courthouse. At the courthouse. Yeah. Hey, Lou. Come here. Yeah. Hey, here's a new one. I seen him right at Santa Claus, North Pole, South Pole, and every other place. Here's a kid writes, Chris Kringle, New York County Courthouse. Can you beat that? The kid's right. Yeah. They got him on trial down there. He claims that he's Santa Claus, and the DA claims that he's nuts. Yeah, hey, read it for yourself. Right on the front page. Hey, uh... Hey, Lou, how many Santa Claus letters we got down at the dead letter office? I don't know. There must be about 50,000 of them. Bags and bags all over the joint, and there's more coming in every day. Yeah. Hey, uh, hey, Lou. Yeah. Uh, it'd be kind of nice to get rid of them, wouldn't it, huh? Yeah, but... Hey, that's a wonderful idea, hey, I mean, after all, why should we be bothered with all that stuff, huh? Why don't you get a couple of trucks up here, big ones, right away, load them with all that Santa Claus mail and deliver it to Mr. Kringle down at the courthouse. Let somebody else worry about it, huh? Hey, jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell. And in come these bundles, of, I think it was 50,000 dead letters. Letters in the dead. Yeah, I liked. I liked how uh, Fred Gailey is is presenting like three letters addressed to Chris Kringle, and the judge is like, "Well, three letters isn't proof. That's not you know." And that I need more. And and he's like, "Are you sure?" And he's like, "Yes." And and Fred's Fred's like, "Well, I have more. I'll bring them in." And then they just dump all the letters on the judge's desk, (laughs) (laughs) and he he sweeps them away with his hands, and, and and his political advisor is finally relieved that there's an out. Yeah, I kind of felt like everybody in the courtroom was in a corner. Like the the state yes. district attorney admits that the existence of Santa Claus, but but still won't admit that Chris Kringle is the Santa Claus. And the judge is like, "Well, I I need to have some kind of you know absolute proof that that Chris is Santa Claus, or otherwise I have to commit him." 
And so these letters are a way to uh, just give everybody an out because they're just like, can we just please wrap this up and go home? It's Christmas Eve. (laughs) (laughs) It started Thanksgiving Day and wrapped up on Christmas Eve. Yeah. Well, a happy note for me, uh, Natalie Wood throughout this, she had one Christmas wish that that she and her mom would move to a home, a house, their own house. And lo and behold... When they show up at the house to look at it, for those of you that haven't seen it, this is kind of a spoiler alert. Inside the house, as they're looking around, what do they see but Kris Kringle's cane? Mm -hmm. And it really leaves the whole kind of mystery and and, uh, setting for Kris Kringle and Santa Claus. The audience is like, or at least I was, like, wow. Santa Claus. Now you know that. Oh no, it can't be. It must have been left here by the people that moved out. Maybe. Maybe I didn't do such a wonderful thing after all. Yeah. See that last that last scene there where they're. Chris gives them directions, and 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 he says that this is going to be a quicker way to get to where you're going. It's you're going to avoid all the traffic, and so they they are following these directions. And then Natalie Wood's character sees this house that's for sale and just gets them to stop. And then she just runs into the house, and that whole scene kind of brought it back to the kind of the the magic of the yes, first half of the it, film for doesn't me. Doesn't it? And it does, yeah kind of left me with that warm feeling of like, well, maybe he is Santa Claus or, you know, maybe it doesn't even matter because it's really more about the spirit and you have to carry it around with you. And that's the important thing. So it it ended well. I, uh, I guess we should give it a rating. huh? Would you like to go first? Ah, this is one of those hard ones I for me know, to rate. Me too. That's why I, 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 I punted. <laughs> thanks for me. Thanks for saying that I should go I, first. I punted to you. I needed more time. Yeah. 
Boy. I'm ready if you want to meet. Well, I would give the first half of the movie a 10. I just really, really enjoyed it. And I just liked watching Chris Kringle kind of make his way through becoming sort of Santa Claus for the city anyway. And I love the ending, which I thought was a 10. I loved all the locations uh, shooting and scenery and the, just seeing, you know, New York in 1947 or 46 or whatever. Um, the second half of the movie was, it was a mixed bag for me. I, there were parts where I just kind of wanted it to get, get going or I was a little bit bored. There were parts where I was kind of like, this is just kind of the easy, I don't know, the, the, the character of Granville Sawyer rubbed me the wrong way. So I would give the middle part maybe a six or the second half about a six. So I, I'd probably land on an eight overall. Yeah, I, I'm glad you went first because you sort of summarized it for me. I did find a little more humor in the in the second half, the second part, particularly the interplay between the political advisor and the judge and the district attorney and his children. So I, I would go 10 on the beginning and the end and probably a seven on the middle. So I'd come in at... so. Probably seven or eight. Yeah, so. But it's a wonderful movie. It really is. It, I'm glad we picked it because it sets the mood for Thanksgiving. Now I'm really going to watch Macy's Parade, which is still going <laughs> yeah. after so many decades. Uh, oh, I know. Yeah, it's it's already... We're recording this on November 1st. It's already November. I can't believe how fast October went. And uh, I know Thanksgiving will be here before we know it and then Christmas. So it's nice to some time and watch some of these movies and i really like watching them for the podcast because then i it's like gives me an excuse to, know. <laughs> to sit down and watch them otherwise i probably would say well i've got other things to do you know i wouldn't take the time as much well and there's so many and that's such a varied assortment it's just, you could spend your whole day watching them i think we're going to do another one in december right so we're gonna our next bonus yes, episode yes. For, the, for patreon is going to be uh, I'm going to go watch Twilight Zone in the theater for three hours. So wish me luck on that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a long... They'll have an intermission, I think, I think. I think the kids said they'd come for like a couple hours. I, I don't know if they'll stay for the whole thing. <laughs> we'll see. I do think that I suggested a uh, second holiday film, uh, The Christmas Carol. Yeah, I think that's what we're going to do 1951 for... 1951 with Alistair Sim. That's my yes. favorite of all of them. It's been made a half a dozen times, but I think that was, I don't think we'd finally settled on that, but that would be my no, vote. I think we should do that one for December. So that'll be the tier two, uh, tier three bonus episode for December. Excellent. So that'll be fun. That'll set the mood for Christmas. Well, I think we've wrapped it up for uh, Miracle on 34th Street. Yes, indeed. So that was our review of Miracle on 34th Street from 1947. And I watched it in black and white. Did you watch the colorized version no, or black I, and white? No, I, I, I watched the black and white. That's the way it was made. I, I'm a big fan of going with the originals. That's what I love about Turner Classic Movies. When they show their movies, they even do the introduction movie, uh, music and the intermission music on films that have those. It's like, oh, totally. it's like from beginning to end, it's the way it was first released i like that i know they had this uh period of time where they they wanted to colorize all these old black yeah. white movies I th i'm glad that died off and wasn't a thing because that just seems wrong to me <laughs> <laughs> me too but anyway <laughs> 
Thanks for listening, everybody, and coming to you from North Bend. This is Matt Johnson. And Bob Johnson in Los Angeles wishing each of you happy movie watching. So fun. I love doing these. I had to buy this movie on Apple TV, darn it, because my copy from Netflix was all scratched up and wouldn't play. And so now I have a copy. I'll just make it an annual tradition to watch it every year <laughs> and get my money's worth. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun movie. Well, we, we didn't have time to get it, so we watched it on demand on our uh, direct tv and we rented it for 3.99 okay yeah i thought about renting it but then i was like well i really need to be able to w- watch you, it a couple you have times, to have so. it for the clips yeah for yeah. the outtakes yeah. this uh this pace of doing this pace of, of doing a movie a week is you got there's no room for like errors on things like that yeah i know it's it's uh it's much more rigorous it's more like a regular job but you know i kind of like it it gives me a lot more structure. I like it too. Yeah, I like the regularity of it and, and the schedule. You know what I liked the most was when you asked me if I could write up East of Eden, and I realized I'd already done it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, that, that was right. That was great. First of all, I was, first of all, I was happy you were going to do it, and then second of all, it was already done. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. So. laughs> when you first sent that, I thought, oh, I'm gonna, I need to write up the Rebel Without a Cause, but then I realized, no, wait a minute. So anyway, that that was that was really nice. Do you know if this movie fell out of copyright protection for a while and was played like constantly on TV, or was or was that a different movie? Maybe that was the movie where the where uh, Henry Fonda is it Henry Henry Fonda falls off the bridge and. <clears throat> oh no! I think I think that one did get out of co- uh, coverage. That was Jimmy Stewart and. Uh... I think that came out in 1948, and now I can't remember the name of it. I think that's the one, and it was it was played a lot, and then they, they somebody got back and put more control on it because it was way over, way over viewed. Not that I don't think this one had any problems like that. It was Jimmy Stewart, and uh, it was like 1948. Frank Capra did the direction. It's a Wonderful Life, yeah. It's a Wonderful Life, yeah, that's the one. I think that did go out of copyright or whatever the protection is.